looking at one of the biggest reasons why the Protestant Reformation ever happened in the first place. And there was an incredible desire building up amongst followers of Jesus, amongst Christians in all of the European countries to desire to turn the Bible to its preeminent place as the true center of Christian union and as by the supreme standard by which all conduct, creeds, and opinions should be measured. In the early 16th century in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church was declaring that the collected traditions of the church for the past 1,500 years were on equal authority with the Bible. They also said at that point in history that whatever the Pope declared was also equal with the Bible. And the Reformers looked around themselves, they looked around at their countries, at Europe as a whole, and they saw an incredible amount of flaws in the traditions and history of the church. And they looked around and saw some obvious and blatant errors in the pronouncements of the Pope at that time, Pope Leo X. They ultimately said, church traditions have something to add. And they said, the, the leadership of the Pope has a lot to add as well. When he is a good and godly and studied and devout person, unfortunately, Pope Leo X was none of those things. But they said, ultimately, what we're saying is that the Bible, the authority of the Bible, trumps both of them. It's the guide for the church as a whole, and it's ultimately a guide for the Pope himself. And then they, the other factor that was in play was the Bible that Roman Catholic churches were using at that time was only produced in Latin. And most Europeans couldn't read Latin. They didn't speak it. They couldn't read it. And so the priest was the only one in the village or the town or the city who could, in fact, read the Bible. And so there was this overwhelming desire that was growing and growing. And about 150 years before, John Wycliffe was a scholar at Oxford University. And as he went back and he translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew, it opened up to him. And he realized, he looked around at all the people in England, and he said, they need a copy of God's Word themselves. And so John Wycliffe uh, campaigned for that throughout his life, and he faced a lot of opposition. But finally, just shortly after his death, his followers finally produced the first Bible in English. Today, the amazing organization Wycliffe Translators is named after John Wycliffe. And I looked up the statistics, pretty incredible. The full Bible, both halves of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, has been translated into 636 languages. And the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, has been translated into 1,442 languages. That was as of 2016, so I'm sure it's a few more now. And all of this was happening all over Europe. There was this growing desire amongst people in almost every nation. In the nation of Czechoslovakia, a man named Jan Hus had the same desire as John Wycliffe. He said, we have got to get the Bible into the hands of the Czech people in their language so they can read it. Martin Luther, one of the driving forces of his life, we said, we, the German people have to have a copy of God's Word 
in their own language. There's a picture of Luther's original Bible. And when scholars look back in the country of Germany today, they said the publishing of Luther's Bible in German actually transformed and solidified the entire German language. Amazing. All of that tells us a little bit of the history, a little bit of the backstory, why you and I today can go to BibleGateway.com and find 57 different translations of the Bible in English alone. It's amazing when you go through there. There's multiple versions in Spanish and French and German. On and on and on it goes. And we as followers of Jesus hold the Bible to be not just any other book on the shelf. I want you to read actually some words from our Fellowship Baptist churches in uh, in BC Yukon. This is our official statement of what we believe about the Bible. I don't usually pull out things from the statement of faith, but this kind of struck me, so I wanted us to read it today. It says, we believe the Holy Bible to, believe, to be that collection of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, which is originally written, was objectively the very word of God, that it was written by men supernaturally moved, that it is verbally and plenarily inspired, that it is truth without any admixture of error, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the age the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to mankind, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. So that is what we believe about the Bible. But what does the Bible actually say about itself? That is a fantastic question. Thank you for asking that this morning. In fact, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to find out just what the Bible has to say about that. If you have your print Bible, you can turn there or turn the app on in your smartphone or follow along on the screens. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, 17. Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if we remember our kind of our biblical timeline here, the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, was still being written. In fact, that very letter that Paul wrote to Timothy became part of our Bible. So when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the holy scriptures are able to make you wise to salvation, he's in fact referring to the first half of the Bible, what we call today the Old Testament. But Paul goes on to make an incredible claim. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, when I thought about that week, I, about that this week, I thought, you know what? That's an astounding claim. 
Paul's essentially saying the writings that happened centuries and centuries and centuries before Jesus ever showed up, they can lead you to faith in Christ. That's an astounding claim. Amazing claim. Philip Towner in his huge, massive commentary, The Letters to Timothy and Titus, he makes an incredible statement. He says, Paul shows us the need to interpret and understand the holy writings by means of the Christian lens and from within a genuine relationship with Christ. He's saying, once you know Jesus, he says it's like putting on a pair of glasses and you get to open up the first half of the Bible and all of a sudden everything that refers to Jesus jumps out at you. So what in the world am I talking about? Well, I want to give you a few examples This absolutely blew me away this week. I knew this, but I needed to be reminded of it. In the first half of the Bible, there are 300 prophecies of Jesus. Some of them given 2,000 years before Jesus ever showed up. Isn't that amazing? I think it's incredible. And most of these prophecies are about specific details. Details that you couldn't just kind of randomly fulfill. Let me give you some examples. Micah 5.2, the Old Testament book, predicted that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Only Jesus could fulfill that. Amazing. Second one, the, the Messiah would be born, born of a virgin. That's a pretty unique, specific event. Only ever happened once in history. Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a prophecy in Hosea that the Messiah, Jesus, would spend a season in Egypt. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the Gospels tell us that actually happened. After Herod was trying to kill the infant Jesus, Mary and Joseph took him to Egypt. And he lived there for several years before they brought him back. It tells us that in Matthew. It tells us there would be a tragic massacre of children when Christ was born. Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus would be crucified right alongside criminals. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, the lawbreakers. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There's a prophecy very specific in the Psalms that Jesus would be given vinegar to drink when he was on the cross. Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Some more prophecies that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. 
And the same prophecy is repeated in a different book by a different prophet in a different time. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And ultimately, amazing prophecies in Isaiah that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to make him suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering from sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Absolutely incredible. The first half of the Bible does make us wise to salvation. It paves the way. It predicts in detail the coming of Jesus, his sacrificial death on a cross, and that such a debt would actually bring us back to God. It would pay the debt of sin. Again, Philip Towner comments, he says, for Paul, Christ is the climax, the peak of the biblical story. And the biblical story interprets Christ. The Old Testament scriptures and the Christ event are integrally related. All right, all of that's pretty interesting, but what does that do for you and I here at Ocean View today? Well, I think it, first of all, shows us that the Bible as a whole is valuable. The first half predicts God's rescue plan for humanity, and the second half tells you exactly how it was accomplished. I think, second of all, it gives us confidence. Now, I just showed you eight out of the 300 prophecies that predict Jesus that were all fulfilled by him. There's two guys by the name of Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, and they wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And they wondered, what are the chances of one person, one individual, fulfilling all 300 prophecies given some of them almost 2,000 years before. What are the chances of that? And they worked it out statistically. Turned out to be one to the power of, or one in 10 odds to the power of 17. Stoner gives an illustration. I don't know if that number means a lot to you, but he said, here's an illustration of what one in 10 to the power of 17 looks like. He says, imagine... For every single one of those, we had a silver dollar. And we took the American state of Texas and we covered it in silver dollars. If we had one, or if we had 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars, it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Then he said, imagine that you take one of those silver dollars and you mark it. And then you take that one dollar and you mix it up amongst all of those others. And then you give one man a blindfold, 
blindfold him and tell him to randomly walk around and find that silver dollar. When he thinks he's got it, he holds it up and you take off the blindfold. That's the chances that one person could fulfill all 300 of those prophecies perfectly. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. I don't know if that means anything to you this morning, but in my heart that goes, wow, I think the Bible is legit. Now that we are primed up, we are ready for the Bible's biggest claim about himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's a pretty big claim that the Bible is God-breathed. It's the very words of God. It's living. It's active. And that when we pick it up and we open up the Bible and we begin to read it with an open heart and an open mind, it actually has the power to change us. Because it's not like any other book. It's actually the words of God. Guinness Book of World Records claims that by 1975, there were two and a half million copies of the Bible in print. Now that number has exploded to well over five billion with electronic and print copies. And that's astounding. That's an astounding number. Five billion copies of the Bible out there. When you think of all the attempts down through history to die and destroy God's Word, to destroy the Bible, or make incredibly stinging verbal attacks on it. I'll give you some examples. In 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, not a nice dude, he ordered all of the Jewish scriptures, all of the books of the law that he could find in what we call today Israel, he ordered all of them to be collected torn and burnt and that obviously caused a huge revolt in the nation of israel and then a number of years later the roman emperor diocletian 284 to 316 this is what he said he said royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that churches be leveled to the ground and scriptures destroyed by fire and Diocletian went on to say, if any person was caught with, with a copy of the Bible, they were to be put to death. So in ancient times, the solution to try and eradicate the Bible was just grab them and burn them, try to destroy them. Today, we're slightly more sophisticated, and skeptics attack the Bible and what it contains. Christopher Hitchens, an outspoken atheist, had some really nice things to say about the Bible in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He says, The Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. Pretty interesting. I actually do have a soft spot for Christopher Hitchens. Um, the more I read about him, the more I realize he was a guy that was desperately searching for God. And uh, because of his background and all those things, it came out in uh, vitriolic statements like that. 
Well, Christopher Hitchens had his doubts, and so did Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. He says, the Bible is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries. That's kind of a pretty good start. Then he kind of ramps it up in his next paragraph. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He writes in another passage, jealous, God is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, who these are big words, Pestis, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sodom sadomasochistic, easy for you to say, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew! Now, if you think about it, we just read a verse in 2 Timothy 3.16 that makes this audacious claim that the Bible is God-breathed, the very vital words of God. And if you think about it, all the attempts to destroy it whether it's through attacks, whether it's through physically trying to burn the copies, if in fact that claim is true, that the Bible is God-breathed, the very words of God, that it's not just any other book on the shelf, that it's alive and living and has the power to change us, then we should expect that the Bible can survive those kind of attacks. And when you think about it, You're like, wow, there's over 5 billion copies of the Bible on planet Earth. I think God knew exactly what he was doing. Well, from there, the Holy Spirit of God guided the Apostle Paul to write in the Bible, to write in those verses that the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I got to read a fascinating article this week entitled Stronger Than Fear. It's written by newspaper and magazine writer Crystal Kurgis. And in the article, she interviewed a woman named Stephanie. Stephanie's parents got divorced near the end of the 1980s. Stephanie's dad moved to Chicago. So when Stacy or Stephanie graduated from high school a few years later, she too moved to Chicago. She enrolled in a college there, And she wanted to be close to her dad as she studied. And in her second year of college, as her dad was helping her move into a new apartment, he was carrying boxes up the stairs, she noticed that he had to keep 